welcome to another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of ChristianGospelChurch.org. And together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, I am so excited about today's episode. We, um, by pure accident, we stumbled upon a newspaper article that completely changes the life story, at least the story that I grew up with, about William Branham's history as a minister in Jeffersonville at what we thought was the Branham Tabernacle as, as his first church. And, you know, through the course of our research, we've learned it was the Billy Branham Pentecostal Tabernacle. But the keywords that I, I usually use when I'm searching William Branham in this, this time period of his life was not pulling up this, this particular newspaper article because of a typo in the early print of the newspaper. They actually had a typo that changed, you know, it, these, these newspaper articles were not coming up in the search. And lo and behold, whenever we started putting our research together, and we, um, you know, started learning new facts about William Branham that we did not previously know. This it changed it changed everything because I was searching a new keyword, and a newspaper article that I had never ever seen before came up, and lo and behold, here is William Branham in his first church, which again I thought was you know the church on the corner of Eighth Street and Penn Street in Jeffersonville, and. Lo and behold, this is not his first church. So I'm so excited to get into this, and today we're, we've got a great episode ahead. In today's episode, what we're going to be talking about is the uh, the start of the Branham Tabernacle. We're going to talk about how uh, William Branham took over Roy Davis's congregation, started the Branham Tabernacle, and uh, really just kind of kicked off those early parts of his ministry. And maybe before we, we dive into what the uh, newspapers and government records and things say, uh, let me first maybe share the official version that we get if we were to read, uh, you know, the different official versions of William Branham's life story, like A Man Sent from God, Supernatural, or God's Generals. The but Aesop's the, Fables version of the story. Yeah. So in, in the official version, uh, it, it goes something like this. Um, so after William Branham had finished having the um, tent meetings that we talked about in our last episode, uh, he, he attracted a huge number of people. They loved him, and they wanted to build him a church. And so they built him a church that fall, uh, in the fall of 1933, there in, in Jeffersonville. And that was the start of the Branham Tabernacle. Um, and then uh, when they built the tabernacle, there's a really uh, famous story that Brother Branham would tell a whole lot when he talked about the construction of the building. Um, he explained that when they laid the cornerstone of the building, uh, that they put something kind of like a time capsule sort of a thing into it. And into there they inserted just all kinds of stuff. William Branham personally claimed that he put a Bible into the into the time capsule, his own personal Bible, and on that Bible was wrote his famous 1933 prophecies, which which we'll talk about some more at another time. Um, 
and all kinds of stuff was just put into this uh this thing that they put into the cornerstone um even even people from the neighborhood came and put things into it in the story right john like uh the catholics came he said a catholic person came and put uh, rosary beads into the cornerstone even he was so against the catholic church and yet they decided they would help celebrate the founding of the branham tabernacle with their beads (laughs) right right so so he he told us all kinds of stuff that ended up buried into this cornerstone including rosary beads right including a his bible with the 33 prophecies wrote in it anyways all this was in the the cornerstone of the of the Branham Tabernacle when they built it in 1933. And so uh, as as we go on through this episode, John, um, we're, we're just going to talk about what, what really did happen, what we can tell from the historical records um, about when this building really was built and uh, what the congregation, who, who, they, who the congregation really was, and also uh, what was in that cornerstone when it was opened up years later. Right. And this ties very strongly to the the past episodes that we've been talking about, the building of the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God sect, of which Roy Davis was the, I don't know what you'd call call his position. It was like he was the pope of the sect, and he was appointing his series of bishops, and they were building an, an entire denomination of faith, not just a single church. And in the last episode, we talked about William Branham, the famous baptismal service that he claims was tied to the tied to this dedication of ceremony of the church, he said as many as 10,000 people there on the banks watching. I mean, we're talking hundreds of people. So if you listen to the Aesop's fable version of this story, you're thinking that there's this massive crowd of people who are suddenly coming from the shores, the banks of the Ohio River, and they're coming to the tabernacle to say, hey, let's start a church. Let's lay the cornerstone and let's build this place. Right. And the, the truth, though, is somewhat different. Um, if, if we listen to these official biographies, William Branham tells a story there, but there's another version that William Branham tells on tape that's a little more close to the truth. Um, and, and the version that he tells that's a little more close to the truth is that he continued to be Roy Davis's assistant pastor until his church burned down. Right. And, and in that telling of the story... Um, after Roy Davis's church burned down, then his congregation gets some assistance, and they go and then build the Branham Tabernacle. And the the problem is the 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 version of the story where Roy Davis's church burned down and they then build the Tabernacle does not line up with uh, the tent. They had the tent meeting and then built the tabernacle because these happened in different years. Right? Different so, stage personas, right? There's right. this stage persona that its history cannot coincide or even be compatible with this other stage persona. Right. So there, there's no way both of those stories are true. Um, and, and the one that seems to be more true is the one that he continued as Roy Davis's assistant pastor um, and, and built the tabernacle in, in, a, in a later year. And, you know, when you look at the when you look at the Branham Tabernacle building, um, they they have this uh, marker on the corner of the building that marks the cornerstone, and they say it was dedicated in 1933. 
And it is a fundamental part of the message. For people who aren't familiar with the ministry, the cult following of William Branham's message cult, this date is so significant because this is the date in which he was allegedly given a series of prophecies that foretold the end of days. He This was tied to his, you know, the end-time messenger stage persona, right? This is God telling the people that these things are going to happen and you will know that this is my prophet, so listen to him. It's strongly tied to the 1933 date. So that's so significant that this date be on the church, yet we're starting to understand this date is not at all accurate. Right, because kind of the way William Branham sets it up in, in the official story is, you know, he has his baptism, the light comes down, and he's announced as the messenger, right? Right. And then in the same period, he also then has his 1933 prophecies, which kind of vindicate him as a prophet. So he has this, this great seven visions of things that are going to happen. And this all hap- this happens right together as, as they're building the tabernacle and kind of helps inspire this congregation to believe he's the prophet. Uh, but, you know, the truth is, the truth is that William Branham, just like we mentioned in the last episode, it was, I think, 1951 or 52 by the first time that he ever mentions a voice saying anything at the river, right? Right. He started making up that element of the story, once, not until the 50s. And the same thing, these 1933 prophecies, he also never mentioned that they even existed until the 1950s either. Right. right. The earliest so, we've found is in the 1950s. Right. So there's no there's no mention of of a voice speaking to him at the river in any of his versions of the story. There's no mention of the 1933 prophecies until he starts to kind of reinvent himself in the 1950s uh, and, and try to and starts to introduce some of these aspects of his ministry. And and it's at that point in time, you know, they they remodeled the tabernacle and kind of redid it in the 19 I think the early 1960s, John. I, I'd have to look to get the exact date. Yeah. But they remodeled the tabernacle, and they added this at that point. This was not on the original building. The original building did not have a dedicated in 1933 marker on it. In fact, the the original tabernacle building looked like this. Right. And it's a, such a small building. If you think in one of the versions of his story where he tells about the people at the baptism, there's 10,000 people. And if you try to imagine 10,000 people fitting into that tiny little building, there's just no way. I mean, they, they if these people truly wanted to come help him establish a church, church, they would have been donating money. Hey, let's build a building big enough for all of us, not just right. part of us. There's no way that they could fit in that building. Exactly. And th- this is a small building. This is only about a third the size of the present tabernacle building. Yeah. You know, when when you look at it, it'd be hard pressed to think that this could hold much more than a hundred people. When yeah. you look at it, maybe a hundred and fifty. And when you build a new church, you don't build it just for the people that are your current converts. You build it with room to expand and grow. So that little tiny building looks like it may have fit the handful of people that the newspaper articles mentioned, but not ten thousand people. 
And another, if you look at the history, you ask yourself, why would I change my backstory about my church? Remember in the 1950s, whenever he starts telling these stories, that's about the time that Roy Davis becomes very, very public with his white supremacy, Ku Klux Klan. He's actually holding debates in the Ku Klux Klan. So here's William Branham, who is in his church. Well, he has to backdate his story so that it looks as though he had a competing church with Roy Davis and was not part of this in Jeffersonville. Right. It's to try and make them look more separate than they actually were. When, when the truth is, William Branham's church really was just a continuation of Roy Davis's church. Um, so when, when, when Roy Davis's church burned down, uh, it burned down in 1934, and I've got the uh, the newspaper articles here. Let me just share them real quick. So here is the uh, the very last newspaper article uh, advertising Roy Davis's church having services, and this is from February of 1934. And there, there's an article here where Roy Davis's Every week, every single week, Roy Davis ran an advertisement in the newspaper saying, "This is this is what we're doing at church next Sunday." Yeah. And so we can we know we have actually a pretty good idea of everything that was going on at Roy Davis's church, you know, at a high level because he ran it in the newspaper mm-hmm. every week. And so those advertisements continued every week until February 1934, and then they suddenly stopped. Uh, and then in the month of May, we find this newspaper article where Roy Davis's church has burnt down, it's telling us, and the city is refusing to let him rebuild his church. Yeah. And we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit more about why the city <laughs> wouldn't want Roy <laughs> Davis to rebuild his church, right? But he, he, the city is refusing to let Roy Davis rebuild his church in 1934. And that is the point in time which the Branham Tabernacle comes into existence, right? Because yeah. just the same... Uh, Brother Branham or William Branham was running advertisements in the paper for his services as well. And we can find very regular um, mentions of William Branham's church and what's going on there once his church gets going. And and the very first uh, mention of William Branham's church in the newspapers is right here, August 15. 1934. And to the people who have been following my research, this is a fact that you won't have seen before. This is almost, uh, what, two weeks old, I think, we found this. You'll notice that it says Pranum, P-R-A-N-H-A-M, instead of Branham. Whenever I was looking for the information that went to the Billy Branham Pentecostal Church, at that time I was searching for Branham, and the newspapers had a typo. This time, we were actually looking for another street that held the Pentecostal Tabernacle, which we'll explain why in a minute. And when I searched Pentecostal Tabernacle, lo and behold, here is his church. And what street is that? That's on... Right. His church is on Pratt Street. It's on Pratt Street, not Penn Street. The current tabernacle today in Jeffersonville sits on 8th Street and Penn Street, not Pratt Street. Right. And so this this is presents this kind of interesting thing because 8th and Pratt Street, that is the site where his tent meeting was held in 1933. Yes. And but it'd it be like the parking lot of the current Branham Tabernacle. Yeah. And it seems like after Roy Davis's church burned down, they've went back to their tent on 8th and Pratt Street. Uh, and 
one thing we st we still need to do that we haven't really looked into enough to figure out is who owned 8th and Pratt Street? Who owned that lot? And because it seems like someone affiliated with Roy Davis and his church there is probably the people who owned 8th and Pratt. Because Roy Davis and his church had been using this lot for tent revival meetings for years at this point. Yeah. Um, and it seems like when Roy Davis's church burned down um, in 1934, we, we know for sure the city would not let him rebuild. Right. And if we take William Branham's uh, testimony on tape rather than what he wrote in his – what's in his books, um, it, it sounds like when, when Roy Davis's church burned down and he was the assistant pastor, that at that point his congregation – the congregation started looking for a place to build a new church because they couldn't rebuild it at Roy Davis's spot. So that's when they move over to this spot. They move over to Pratt Street. They go back to the same spot where he had his tent meetings. And they're most likely in a tent even yeah. at this point in time because the church owned a tent, the tent that William Branham had held his revival meetings in. And remember, in the Bible, a tabernacle was a tent, so this wasn't unusual to advertise this way. And the big, you know, the ceremony of starting the tabernacle could have been literally starting the tent and erecting the tent on the location. Exactly. And, and again, we, we note that it's 1934, not 1933. And they're at Pratt Street. And so what we did earlier, John, is we, we went back to the pictures where they're building the tabernacle and erecting something there. And we're trying to we was trying to figure out what it looked like in the pictures, John. And so here is a picture of William Branham standing at the cornerstone of of this building they're building. So I grew up fully believing that this you know, this Branham Tabernacle that I went to was William Branham's first church, and I believe that it was always the William Branham Branham Tabernacle, because why would I not? That's what he told us. That's what he said on recording, on tape. And I sat through sermons where my grandfather talked about, you know, this was William Branham's first church. This is where the angels line the walls of this building. This is where the prophecies are buried in this building, right? And when I learned that it was the Billy Branham Pentecostal Tabernacle before the Branham Tabernacle, I was really shocked because, you know, they completely changed the life story as I knew it, and there were significant problems with that. They are in the parking lot of the present Branham Tabernacle. They're at 8th and Pratt Street. They're at the address given in, in, in this newspaper article, the same right. site where his tent meetings were. So they're, they're not at the site. And there's another photograph where you're seeing the side view of that church. And if you look at that side view, that dedicated in 1933 inset is not there. Actually, that's the one that I started to look at when we um, began. So Charles is holding up the the front view, and you can see there's the Branham Tabernacle, and in front of it, it looks like there's this dirt road, and you can kind of see the width of the road. Then there's another side view that we were looking at earlier, and the side view, um, I'll, I'll throw it up into the video, but you can see that there is the church, and then there's a curved dirt road that goes to the front of the church, a very small road, and you see this gravel road off to the side that is 8th Street, and if you zoom in on the corner of that building, that inset dedicated in 1933 is not there. Yeah, so there, there's definitely a, a, a discrepancy here. And, and the newspapers, you know, clearly are saying—so here's the thing. 
the newspapers ran these articles because you know the person at the church submitted it to them to run right right so so this is if not william branham himself someone at william branham's church has given this to the newspaper right they're yeah. even saying their church is on 8th and Pratt Street. So it, it's not uh, like the newspaper um, made a mistake, you know, and went out and guessed the street. But they told – this is the address that whoever submitted this to the newspaper to run this classified ad, basically, yeah. gave them that address. Right, John? I mean, so – and, and I think we should pause here for safety concerns, Charles, because we, we don't want the Jeffersonville Police Department to have extra work. <laughs> William Branham said that he buried his prophecies in the cornerstone of the church. And people for, have for decades, you know, wondered, are the prophecies under the building an eighth and pen? I can just picture all of these fanatics, these hardcore message believers going and trying to bust up the concrete and dig down. <laughs> and keep, keep listening to the episode because you're going to find out that they're not even in there anyway. There's no need to dig <laughs> There's up no the need. parking lot of the Branham Tabernacle. <laughs> there, you're not going to find any prophecies buried there either. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, it's what what really seems like happened, you know, when we put when we put together the pieces, it seems like after Roy Davis's church burned down, um, they they already owned as part of Roy Davis's church, they owned this lot at Pratt Street because they were already having tent meetings here. And when the city when the city refused to let them rebuild their church on Watt Street, which of course there's plenty of good reasons that they wouldn't want him to rebuild Roy Davis to rebuild his church, right? They they go over and they're probably at first just using the same tent that was already on Pratt Street, but then at some point along the way, um, they acquire uh, the lot next door, Eighth and Penn. So they didn't own Eighth and Penn in 1934, right? We we actually have the deeds. Yeah. This is when they purchased Eighth and Penn here. Yeah, and that's and, what, and, November, right? 1936, I think? Yes, John, it, it's November 1936. Right. And, and so they've, they've bought the, the eighth and pen, uh, you know, at that point. And somewhere, somewhere in there, they have, they've rebuilt the tabernacle, uh, or they've built the tabernacle for the first time, I should say, at eighth and pen. And the very first, newspaper article explaining or saying that the tabernacle is eighth and pen is actually in august 17 1935 right so prior to this the newspaper articles are using the pratt street address but here it changes to the penn street address right and this this yeah. fairly closely co coincides with that deed um purchasing the purchasing the eighth and pen for the tabernacle and the title of that church the name of that church is significant in that. It, exactly. If you notice in all of these articles that we're holding up, even the Eighth and Pratt one, you know, from 1934, and and I'll just say these are just just a few of dozens of articles. William Branham ran very fairly regular advertisements yeah. in the newspaper for his church, and all the way into the 1940s, the name of his church was the Pentecostal Tabernacle. The Pentecostal Tabernacle. So the name of his church, even in these in these articles, is a a huge problem yeah. uh, for the message because William Branham was supposed to be a Baptist at this point. He was supposed to not even like the Pentecostals. They was just a bunch of holy rollers and I was scared of them <laughs> and didn't want to go around them. But the truth is, and we're going to get into more of this deeply in the next episode, William Branham's church was a Pentecostal church from day one. Yeah. From day one. 
And to people who aren't familiar with the message folklore, this is so significant that the cult appears to go to great lengths to cover this up. Because if you don't have a Baptist church, then you don't have the key element of his life stories, which was that he was basically, I mean, there's even sermons with this title, Running from the Presence of God and whatnot. He's basically a Baptist minister who quote-unquote, listened to his mother-in-law and kept his daughter, her daughter, his wife, Hope, out of the Pentecostal church until after the 1937 flood of the Ohio River. And he claims that that's whenever God killed his wife, Hope, and she died because he, quote-unquote, avoided the Pentecostal call or whatever. So Pentecostal is significant in this in this issue because if he is already Pentecostal, then there's no need for God to kill hope and all of this backstory. So when searching for vindication.com first started publishing their information, one of the articles that they published had the city directory. And I wanted a copy for myself. So I go to the library. Remember, they had just been to the library. They had just started publishing. They had a copy from the library of the city directory. By the time I went, someone had actually torn the page out that had Branham in the city city directory. So I went to the librarian who managed the Indiana room and she said, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did this. Not just in one book, but every city directory, the page had been torn. So she said, thankfully, this isn't the only copy. We can order more books. We have copies of it in the state archives. So she, you know, replaced it. I just went back earlier this year. Someone had again ripped these pages out of the books. Yeah, it's something else, John, because I've, I've seen those same things. Somebody, somebody, somewhere is selectively ripping the William Branham related pages out of the public records, the public historical documents, the public library documents, the courthouse documents, and and destroying those records on purpose, right? And why would you want, if you, this is the truth, why would you want to cover up the truth? Right. Like the, the, and of course we know because we've found copies of the pages that were ripped out, they're being destroyed. Uh, one possible cause is because they actually disprove the stuff that William Branham has said. You know, just like we pull up that deed from the county courthouse <laughs> where the tabernacle was originally registered with the city as the Billy Branham Pentecostal Tabernacle in 1936, yeah. not 1933. Right. And keep in mind, so we showed the photograph of William Branham standing on the corner of the building, and this was ceremonial. This was not just a you know, a photograph of him standing saying, look, I can balance myself. This was specifically a ceremony because it is... It was a Masonic practice to basically dig a cornerstone, and it was a ceremony of erecting the building, a very Masonic practice. And for what we're about to get into, the Masonic ceremony is significant. Right, and and that kind of, you know, that ties back to all the reason that they put the stuff in the cornerstone and everything was all tied to that to that Masonic practice. And, and if you remember, I'm just going to read a couple quotes of John. Um, you know, when William Branham talked about the Klan paying his hospital bill, just let me read that. He said, the Ku Klux Klan paid the bill for me. Pause. Masons. 
Right. I can never forget them, see, no matter what they do. There's something that stays with me, what they did for me. So William Branham um, connected the the clan and the Masons as as the same people. You know, obviously they're not the same organization. They're two separate groups. But he's saying here in his area, the the there was over there was overlap. The members were part of both of those different groups. Yeah. And and then he goes on in other sermons, he says a quote like this. This is from Be Not Afraid from It Is I from 1961. William Branham says in this sermon, all my people are Masons. Yes. All my people are Masons. So in one sermon, he's saying the clan or the Masons who paid the bill for me. In another sermon, he's saying all my people are Masons. <laughs> right. Right. And And this is very similar, John, to the response i know we have both got from different ones when we when we've asked them and they'll say well we was all in the clan back then <laughs> right. we was all in the clan back then and so when william Branham says all my people are masons you know it kind of leaves me with this question what you know what does he mean is he talking about all of his church was masons all of his family all his pe- but all his people was masons right yeah. he says that and he also says the ku klux klan paid the hospital bill for me pause Masons. Masons. Yeah, there's a few points that I want to make here. And some of it's embarrassing, right? Because whenever I began this research, I knew nothing about the Ku Klux Klan or the Masonic Order. I had no idea really what this even was. I knew that the Klan was white supremacy, but I had the common misconception that it was just anti-black. But that turned out not to be the case. But they were two completely separate fraternal orders. One was a white supremacy fraternal order. One was a cloak and dagger secret history. Um, They're basically Freemasonry is what he's talking about here, the Masons. And if you study the history of the Masons, it's quite incompatible in many ways with Christianity. So I was a little surprised when I got into this, but the way that he says it, he says the Ku Klux Klan, Paws, Masons, two completely separate groups. It would be a good example. would be like me saying, I see these people at the park and they're playing basketball. These people who play basketball, Paws, people who shop at Target. It's two completely separate things, but by combining them, you know that these people in the park that play basketball also shop at Target. Ridiculous example, but that's the same level of, of, you know, separate entities that he's talking about here. The other point is that we do have research that he was accurate. We have the death, the, the obituary of Dolores Branham, and she was in the Masonic Order of the Eastern Star. And the Eastern Star is also significant to this story because the early pictures, and I'll pull one up for the vid, for the YouTube version of this podcast, the early pictures of the Branham Tabernacle actually had a pentagram above the door, a satanic symbol in most you know in most people's view, but this was the Order of the Eastern Star. It had the you know the the pointed down star that was, you know, tilted slightly to the right, the pentagram was above the building, the Branham Tabernacle on the door. Yeah. And, and, you know, as far as Masons go, um, obviously people were more shy to admit that they were in the clan back in those days, but people were kind of proud to be Masons and uh, people would, a lot of people would openly claim to be Masons. And, and I know at our church, John, I am aware that, 
a fair number of the old timers were, were indeed Masons, right? Um, people going back to Tabernacle Day. So, you know, I, I can confirm that, you know, for sure there was Masons in that, in the Branham Tab, or in the Branham Tabernacle going back to Roy Davis's church as well. And like I said, I know, I know people who knew the people who were in, uh, Roy Davis's church. And I personally know people who were in Roy Davis's church too. Yeah. Um, and so, I know, John, they were definitely connected to white supremacy, and there's definitely Masons in there as well. And, of course, those are two different orders. But yeah. w- William Branham, we can uh, basically, we can understand why he's performing this Masonic ritual, right? And, and, that fact, and, and that fact also kind of helps establish to us through his sayings, through his own admission, that there were Klan people in his church, right? And we know that key figures in his early church, which one of them we'll get into a little bit later, through the newspaper articles, the advertisements, we know that certain members, key members of his church, were also in the Masonic order. Yeah, it's something else, something else. And so as we as we go on, John, you know, when when they did this, when they buried this stuff in the tap in the cornerstone, right? Um, <clears throat> They put it all in there. They did. They did their thing. William Branham talked about it being in there. You know, I, I think I already mentioned that he. It wasn't until the fifties that he started. Um, uh, he started sharing that story. And it's such a crazy story when you think about it, because the Klan was very anti-Catholic, and he mentions the Catholics putting the you know the Catholic beads into this cornerstone. And why would they do it, right? He's this yeah. is a man who's working with the you know, the second in command of the Ku Klux Klan who hate the Catholics, why would they join in the ceremony? Yeah, it, it, it's part of they just invite anyone in the community to come put stuff into this cornerstone. And, and of course, John, you know in the, the cornerstone has been open multiple times to try and find uh, the things that William Branham buried in it. And I'll, I'll share one of the stories. So, you know, at William Branham's funeral, so William Branham died in, in December 1965, but they kept him on ice until April, and then they finally buried him and had his funeral um, on uh, Easter Sunday, I believe it was, in, in April 1966. And so well, I know I know lots and lots and lots of people who were there that day when that happened. My family was there that day of the funeral. My pastor of my church was one of the men who officiated William Branham's funeral that day. So I know all kinds of people who were there that day, John. And, you know, of course, William Branham was supposed to raise from the dead, right? I mean, that was what a whole bunch of people were saying. Yeah. Um, My grandfather. My grandfather believed it. Perry Green, who is one of William Branham's right-hand man. I mean, they're they're both key figures of the message. Lee Vale believed it. I don't know that they believed it now, now that I look back and I know some facts. But they promoted the idea. And if you think about it, the prophet just died, Immediately a cult implodes when this happens, but how do you hold them together? You tell them that he's coming back, and so everybody, well, let's don't leave now. Let's wait and see if he comes back. This was literally a strategy to keep people from leaving after he died. Yeah. So they they put him into the ground. They bury him. And guess what, John? He didn't resurrect. Right? Imagine that. (laughs) Right. And so so there's a man there. And, you know, I want to say a little bit of concern starts to set in the crowd. He was supposed to resurrect, right? That was what some people's expectations had been set to. And there's a man in the crowd. His name is Ben Bryant. Um, He, 
he's well known in this area, you know, as a message <laughs> believer. He's passed away now. Yeah. And he had been a World War II veteran, and in the war he had sustained an injury that left him with some, some mental problems. So he was... He had some mental difficulties, okay? And so as the funeral's ending and William Branham has not resurrected, um, he has the idea that the answer to why he's not resurrected, the answer to what comes next, must be buried in the cornerstone. Right. Because that's what William Branham said. Right. And so he had, I, I, you know, how... I guess he just carries jackhammers around in the trunk of his car. I don't know, but he had a jackhammer that day, John. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, and so and so, you know, the tabernacle and the cemetery is pretty close. So they they head over. They just you know a blocks a couple block difference, and they're over at the tabernacle. And he jackhammers open the cornerstone, and there's a a large crowd has came with him from the gravesite to witness this. And there's lots of people there. I have known multiple eyewitnesses. Of of that were there this day, and so he jackhammers up the ta- the the cornerstone. They 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 carefully you know pull it apart, open it up, and look inside the cornerstone. And guess what they found in there, John? <laughs> the prophecies. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Not Nothing. a thing. Nothing. What about was the Catholic? What about the Catholic beads? Right. No. Not even the Catholic beads. Right. So. W- what what we did in our part of the message, and I, I don't know what maybe you did in, in your part, but so the way we explained this was William Branham said, if you don't believe me, go look in the cornerstone. <laughs> so we said, anybody who looks in the cornerstone is an unbeliever. And so, so <laughs> and so we just completely shut it down, right? You look in wow. the cornerstone, you're an unbeliever, right? So we didn't even, so we never even had to engage the question of why it was empty. We just, you're an unbeliever. <laughs> Uh, William Branham said, "You're an unbeliever. You looked in the cornerstone." So, so we just completely shut it down, right? But so we never had to answer the question: Why was the cornerstone empty? Oh my right? gosh, that explains. So, whenever I was at the restaurant and I saw Raymond Jackson for the first time, and he looked at my grandfather, and I mean, it was like the Seinfeld episode: "Hello, Willard." <laughs> <laughs> He thought that Willard Collins, my grandfather, was an unbeliever because my grandfather was also there and saw that it was empty. Mm-hmm. I've known that it was empty for a long time. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't until recently that I could have somebody else who testified that it's empty and I could publish it. Yeah. So it it, it was empty, John. And here's the thing, you know, a, a book of paper, you know, okay, maybe paper could could rot and decay and go to, <laughs> you know, go to nothing, right? But there's William Branham gave all kinds of stuff that was in this in this cornerstone with it, yeah. and some of that stuff like rosary beads. Rosary beads shouldn't rot away. Rosary beads they don't decay. You know, glass beads don't decay, right? They should have still been there. One of the common it, it sounds so ridiculous when you think about it, but. I've even got a video of this. I'll probably link to it in the description. But one of the ways in which the primary sect explains this away is they say, well, the angels of God came down and they would not let the people see it because it was holy. So the angels stole it out of the out of the capsule that's in the cornerstone. And the question is, well, did they steal the Catholic beads, too? Because Catholicism, <laughs> according to Branham, yeah, was evil. evil. Right, so did the angels take Catholic rosary beads to heaven? <laughs> right, like it doesn't, uh, it don't that don't add up either, right? And at the end of the day, it's it's all just explanations to to avoid facing fact. William Branham misled us 
about all this. Yeah. This is not what happened. You know, that that's the thing about all this stuff. You know, no matter how you shake it up, you know, maybe we don't have all of the facts lined up maybe quite right when we look at these newspaper articles. But one thing is 100% sure, right? Right. What happened is not what William Branham said in his official biographies. What actually happened is not what he told us. He misled us about all of this stuff. There's no way to take the facts and line them up with what William Branham said, right? So he definitely made this stuff up. And and the cornerstone was empty, John. It empty. was empty. So funny story about Ben Bryant, the man who dug it up. <clears throat> My family knew Ben Bryant. He was regular attendee at the Tabernacle. And like you said, he did have some mental handicap issues, but he... Um, we we actually sat right behind him often whenever I was a kid, and he would get excited, and he would stand up and kind of dance while they're listening to this recording of William Branham. And one time, he grabbed the lady's wig in front of her and pulled it off of her head and patted <laughs> her head and put the wig back down. He he had some issues, but it also it it's kind of funny because he was he was also well respected in the message he also was kind of a key figure in a way he, he was there is another cult in jeffersonville indiana it's the cult called christ gospel church yeah and christ gospel church was bernice hicks william branham's william branham had a female um uh, Sunday school teacher, which in the Branham Tabernacle, that's like a preacher. She split away. She started her own cult, and her church actually started out west. I think it was Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Ben Bryant was sent to help her start the church. Branham mentions wow. this on yeah. on recording. And when William Branham was buried, that pyramid that sits there today hmm. was not always there. And there's a funny story worth telling on this episode, Charles, that you yes. know of why yeah. the pyramid is there. I'll, I'll, I'll tell that story. And Ben Bryant, yeah, he was he helped uh, Brother Jackson, Raymond Jackson, uh, set up the first Faith Assembly Church in New Albany as well. So, yeah, he, he helped set up a lot of message churches. Um, but, yeah, so Ben Bryant, you know— Shortly after William Branham is buried, so so here's the man, he, he was disturbed, William Branham hadn't resurrected, he digs up the cornerstone, that's empty. Well, before much longer he gets the idea that a telephone should be installed in William Branham's <laughs> casket so that he can phone out when he resurrects, right? Because they might, ha- I guess they might have to dig him up so he can get out of the <laughs> casket, right? So yeah, one, one night, uh, Ben Bryant uh, starts to dig to install a telephone into William Branham's <laughs> casket. This is before the the big pyramid was over the grave, right? And part of the reason they bought they made such a great big uh gravestone was so that you know, you could not possibly <laughs> you couldn't disturb dig the body. into the grave, right? You know what I mean? Without I mean that thing falling on you, right? So yeah. that's that's part of the reason they did such a really big uh uh massive thing over the grave because Ben Bryant had tried to install a, a telephone into his casket. I always wonder what the people in Jeffersonville think of this place because it's well advertised that they believe that he was going to raise from the dead. And if you mention, I went to the Branham Tabernacle in Jeffersonville, everyone, their first response is, oh, you mean that guy that's going to raise up out of the grave, the pyramid, right? right. 
And and you hear these stories like this. I mean, this had to have been common right. knowledge. This would have made the right. news. Hey, some guy just tried to dig up the prophet's grave. Mm-hmm. It's right. and unbelievable. He, and here's the thing. You know, like there's a lot of people in the message that have mental problems, right? Like like Ben Bryant. Yeah. Kind of, and, you know, we kind I kind of excuse that, right? Ben Bryant, you know, wasn't. He, he, he had some mental problems, right? Yeah. But the people with these, they're just acting out what their leaders have preached to them and told them. And they, they fully believe it, and they're acting out in accordance with what, what they've been told, right? And there's people that will do crazy and have done crazy, even dangerous, deadly things because something in their mind is maybe just not right and they're listening to what these people have told them right and that's all ben bryant was doing he was just acting out according to what the the leaders in the churches were saying if you think about it this was a faith healing cult and so there are a lot of people in the united states then now that have mental health issues and uh, like my family mental health issues runs in my family as well my i've got direct family members that have been hospitalized. So I have no problem with people having mental health issues. I understand that it's no different than diabetes or whatnot. You just need, you know, medicines or whatnot. But people who had this condition would go to the healing revivals looking for a cure. And unfortunately, they were more easily susceptible to this kind of thing because they had some mental health issues. Yes, and and what's, what's really sad, John, I know you and I have talked about this, like the, there is a really high rate of mental illness among message people I have known, right? And I've often wondered, you know, just why that is. And maybe that's something for another episode, but (laughs) there there is a high rate uh, among the people there. But anyways, maybe kind of coming back to the the tabernacle construction. So we, we know, we know it was not built in, we know for sure that it was not at its present location uh, in 1933 or 1934. Uh, and the people that were sending it to the newspaper run of the advertisements were saying it was at Pratt Street, not Penn Street. And it, it wasn't until, you know, roughly 1935 that they then have constructed the building at... Um, at, at Penn Street. And right. I think, you know, we just say again to the, you know what's going to happen, John, is the next time we drive past the Branham Tabernacle. Um, Do not dig up the ground. It is not there. <laughs> We're going to see the uh, parking lot under excavation, right? Yeah. <laughs> Trying to find these prophecies. Because, so here's the thing, when they when, when Ben Bryant jackhammered up the cornerstone on the day of the funeral, that's not the only time they've dug up the cornerstone, right, John? They they dug up the cornerstone a second time in the 1980s. There was a an ac- a car crashed into the same crashed into the Branham Tabernacle again, right on the corner. So in in the 1980s, when 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 it had that structural damage, they opened in the Tabernacle's cornerstone again, John, and a, a crowd of people came for that <laughs> as well to open the, the the cornerstone the second time. And guess what they found in the cornerstone that day, John? The prophecies. Nothing. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Not a thing. <laughs> right. It, there was nothing nothing in there again. You know, that was one of the things I found along the way. I found several things that tipped me off that my grandfather was aware of these things and had been for decades. But he, as the pastor at that time of the Branham Tabernacle, was also there for the first digging up of this cornerstone. He knew that it was empty, yeah. but he allowed it to happen again 
meaning that he wanted to act surprised when it was empty a second time to pretend that this thing happened. So he had to have known he was definitely in on it. I know. When when I've heard the story of the second time that it opened, like that always perplexed me. Like, because I know those guys were there. Some of them had to be there the first time it was open. Like, why are they, why didn't they just admit to the people that it's yeah. empty or whatever? Why dig it up? Yeah, it, it didn't make any sense to me when I heard that, you know, they'd opened it up the second time. But anyway, so so that happened. And, and so there's no, there's no prophecies buried in the cornerstone and nothing that William Branham said was in that cornerstone was there. And, and that kind of, again, just proves to us that he was making this stuff up. He's just making this stuff up as he went along. He always said that it was this church, it was this Branham Tabernacle, they're buried in this building. He is talking about this building. So again, don't go dig up the street or the you know the Pratt Street address. He said it was here. He said it was in my church in the Branham Tabernacle. Right. So so we've we've A established the tabernacle was not built in 1933 like we were told certainly not the building that that's there today uh two we've established the stuff that william branham said he put in the cornerstone was not there and and the third thing i think that that's an important point that we make is that william branham kind of led us to believe that his congregation was basically these this vast number of new converts that he made at the 1933 baptism but that's not true either William Branham's congregation was almost entirely Roy Davis's congregation moving over after their church burned down. Like that is that was Roy Dave that was his congregation. His congregation was the Roy Davis congregation uh from 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 his church and and there's there's things about that cuz you remember the William Branham talks about when he first went to Roy Davis's church George D'Arc was there preaching racist Christian identity theology preaching that black people were descended from apes, right? He talks about George D'Arc preaching that when he went there. And William Branham, of course, says, well, I never believed any of that, right? That's all That's all hogwash. We don't believe any of that. But here's the thing. When William Branham started the Branham Tabernacle, the same man that he told us was preaching racist Christian identity theology at Roy Davis's church. It's just so hard to fathom that he would say something like this. I mean, here's George D'Arc, the guy that I'm telling you, has this racist white supremacy theology that I, William right. Branham, do not agree with at this time. Now, I'm going to agree with parts of it later, and you can ignore that. But at this time, I do not agree with it. And right. yet, still, I'm going to make him an elder in my church and even a trustee at the Billy Branham Pentecostal Tabernacle on the D. Right, right. How does that make sense? Uh, so Roy Davis, he or George D'Arc preaches that uh, black people are descended from apes, and I don't believe any of that. That that don't add up, right? So clearly, clearly something there don't the dots don't connect the way William Branham tells the story. His congregation was a continuation of Roy Davis's congregation. Here's what I wonder. So. George D'Arc was preaching Christian identity theology at Roy Davis's church. I wonder what he was preaching at William Branham's church when it was the Branham Tabernacle. 
I'm, I'm certain. I mean, if you think about the, the structure of the message, the, the notion is that this is a divine message sent by God that we must know in order to have rapturing faith. And here's the messenger, and I'm going to give him these prophecies that he has and he buries in this church, and this is proof that he is the messenger for our age. And one of these key mysteries that we're supposed to believe is this mystery of the serpent's seed. And if this was the case, if this were the case, and God had given this message, it would be a consistent message through time. Right. God gave me this. But William Branham, in his early versions of his stage persona, pretended, I think he did believe the serpent seed doctrine, but he pretended that he thought that Adam and right. Eve were the mother of all living. Right. Uh, when, you, when you listen to how he kind of disagrees with George D. Arc's stuff, he does it in a very clever way, um, such that his version of Serpent Seed differs a little bit, right? Right. From George D'Arc's version. Yeah. And, you know, as we go on, just want to reinforce the point. William Branham's congregation was Roy Davis's congregation. It yeah. was the same people. And here's a picture of uh, Roy Davis's church and some of his congregation. And these same people ended up coming over to William Branham's church. The preachers in Roy Davis's church came over to William Branham's church and continued to be preachers. The congregation came over and continued to be part of his congregation. The people he said, all my people are Masons, right? We have newspaper articles confirming he was being truthful. They were Masons. They were Freemasons. Yeah. And some of these Masons that were in Roy Davis's church transitioned over to be in William Branham's church. This connections to Roy Davis do, do not end when William Branham starts the tabernacle. Roy Davis's congregation just moves over. And a, another very important evidence that I, I know we're going to go into deeply down the road is that the Jeffersonville church was not the only church Roy Davis planted in this area. Roy Davis was starting a denomination. He planted other churches as well. And when Roy Davis left and William Branham, you know, started the tabernacle and the congregation moves over to the tabernacle, the Branham Tabernacle, Roy William Branham also takes the pastorship of other churches besides the tabernacle that Roy Davis has founded, right? the there's other there's another church for sure that we know William Branham took pastorship of so it, it wasn't just the Roy Davis congregation in Jeffersonville that William Branham took leadership of but other churches that were connected to Roy Davis and that he had planted William Branham becomes their pastor as well so so he is succeeding Roy Davis as he leaves this area almost like a, a district superintendent or a bishop sort of a thing in this area. Yeah, and when you think about that combined with the um, the newspaper article that you just held up of Catherine Davis, this, this is so significant. This one piece of evidence is so significant because if you think about the timeline in you know, in the early 30s, what was it, 1934, he was on the Pratt Street, Pratt Street Tabernacle. Roy Davis's church was imploding. Roy Davis actually, um, he angered half the town of Jeffersonville. He was involved in this horrific scandal where he stole the inheritance of the family of a very wealthy widow in Jeffersonville. 
and the family tried to get the money back and Roy Davis basically ends up suing half the town. There's this massive lawsuit of everybody against Davis and then mysteriously his church burns right after this event. So William Branham is involved with Davis at that time. So the whole scandal was Davis and his elders, which included Branham. And then there's this weird period of time where the church for Davis transitions to Branham. William Branham mentions this on recording, but the members inside the church seem to, you know, they realize that there's something wrong with these guys. Roy Davis is, I think it, you know, he was actually headed for prison. He went to Arkansas prison. He was defrauding members of the church, stealing inheritance, all kinds of dirty things, had an underage girl that he was, now we know he was sleeping with and all of these other things. So they split and they created their own branch of the Pentecostal Baptist church sect. So the question is, did those people become the legacy of Davis's church because Davis was building a denomination? That key piece of evidence says, no, Davis's daughter, the one who was in the Jack and Granny radio show with Davis, nationally famous, Jack and Granny, her daughter, married, who was it on the paper, I think is Henry, Henry Branham. Henry Branham, so William Branham's brother. So we know that Davis was on the Branham side of the church as it imploded. So Davis is rising up to be basically the pope of this new denomination, and he needs bishops to oversee. And William Branham, there was other churches that William Branham was the leader of, so he was like a bishop to Roy Davis's pope. Yeah, and it, it, it really just establishes, like you said, John, that that Roy Davis was still aligned with William Branham coming out of this thing. And and it seems like the people who continued on with the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God group, which they eventually, they went defunct within a year or so, it seems like those were the people who had been cheated and defrauded by Roy Davis, right, who were trying to go their own way, whereas the main core of the group, the leadership under Roy Davis, like George D. Ark, like William Branham, like Roy Davis's family, they all are over with William Branham going to the Branham Tabernacle at that point. So, yeah, it... Roy Davis, we understand, you know, there's 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 a, certainly a good understanding of why the city refused to let him rebuild his church, right? He's a bad guy. They want him out of town. And, and the whole reason his church burned down, too, right, is is very suspicious. You know, Roy Davis yeah. had a history of burning down his, his whatever <laughs> before he left town. Like, that was a pattern with him. Um, and it's also possible that people got so angry at him that they burn it down for him, right? Like, yeah. this... Roy Davis's church didn't burn down on accident. I think that's a pretty safe, you know, assessment. Um, and so it's burned down, and the city denies him the ability to rebuild. And and this is actually what necessitates the creation of the Branham Tabernacle. They need a new church under new leadership that the city will give a permit and let them build for, right? Because they're the city has had enough of Roy Davis. And they had tent meetings. They had a tent tabernacle on the spot. So it was the most likely location in the city. Right. They already owned that spot. They already had a tent. They could easily move there. And then it just took some time for them to buy the lot next door where the tabernacle is built today, the 8th and Penn lot. Right. Yep. It, 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 it's an amazing story, John. Amazing story. There's so much stuff here to look at. There's so much to go through. I, I'm really looking forward to the next episode when we can start to... Uh, next episode, we're going to start diving into this whole aspect of William Brennan was actually a Pentecostal. 
uh, and and what was going on uh, in that period of time. Because William Branham was continuing to work with Roy Davis and his denomination, certainly up through the 1930s, even after Roy Davis leaves town. And we're, we'll talk about that some more next time. And we have a lot of listeners who were never involved with the message sect, with the William Branham's cult of personality called The Message. And it's probably good just to do a basic recap of the significance of this one episode, because to be quite honest, this episode, when you consider the message cult theology, this is the one that is is really the beginning of its unraveling. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have a Baptist preacher, if William Branham was not Baptist, there would be no need for God to kill his wife and daughter in the 1937 flood of the Ohio River to convince him to turn to Pentecostalism. We have those city directories that the people ripped out, Charles. It is so significant because it's not just William Branham at the Branham Tabernacle. Hope is mentioned as, you know, it's William Branham and Hope at the Pentecostal Tabernacle. So she was a Pentecostal at the time, you know, in 1936 at minimum, probably earlier than that, because she was in Davis's Pentecostal church. Yes. And she was preaching. And she was preaching. Pentecostal church. William Branham's first wife was a woman preacher. Yeah. Which contradicts his story. Remember, he said one of the reasons why he left Davis's church because of female preachers. Well, then he takes the female preacher and marries her. The next episode is going to be great, John, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) There's so much there. Let me uh, let let me uh, just end with uh, showing this again. Here is the man, Roy Davis. Here's the guy who uh, ordained, baptized William Branham, sponsored the 1933 tent meetings, who is the man whose congregation follows William Branham over to the Branham Tabernacle. This is the man who recruited the initial congregation of the Branham Tabernacle and set Branham as their leader. He is the Pope of the Pentecostal Baptist Church of God sect. He is the imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, the national leader of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, by the time you get into the 1950s, the 1920s, he had been second in command, as, as we've already talked about. And at the time that these things are happening, he's been trying to form a new white supremacist organization. And this denomination that he is building is serving as its religious front end. Um, and William Branham is here taking this key position as he's building this organization. It's so significant because if you understand the history of what's going on besides the religion, you start to realize that this was not really a religious cult. This was actually a political cult that was operating behind the scenes or under the disguise of a religious cult, political cult operating as a religious cult. And there's just so much here. There's more than we can talk about in one single episode. So let's uh, let's cut off here, and we're going to get into some very exciting stuff next week. Yes. If you've enjoyed the episode and you want more information, check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. And for an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the healing revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming. <laughs>